Michael. Hello. Hello, baby angel. Welcome to the Space Jam. Thank you. How are you? Hi, how are you even? Oh, I'm fine. I just polished off a bag of um, uh, uh, potato chips. Oh, I was just eating tortilla chips with everything bagel-flavored hummus. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it was delish. Grunge Girl ordered a bread that we really like, like 10 loaves to come. Ooh. Yeah, so hopefully they won't arrive anytime soon or else we're going to be dealing with a barking skeeter. But we're excited for our bread delivery. Any plans for the the high holidays rapidly approaching us? Uh, Are you going to like see your family or anything? Is that something your family does? We think we struggle with high holidays and what to do with them like what are we supposed to yeah not like what are we supposed to physically do it's more like what are we supposed to feel like we don't sure we don't really know what to feel mm-hmm. and when you don't know what to feel you just feel guilt so <laughs> right if you're a jew that is correct yeah if you don't know what to feel you can always fall back on that i don't know i've never been a high holidays jew Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not a very social Jew. Right. High holidays is a time when, like, people are social. Not just, like, Jews to other Jews, but, like, people are social to you. <laughs> right. Because you are a Jew mm-hmm. about the high holidays. People target you. Yeah, people target you. Exactly. Remember that time you, you had the birthday and you said that friends gave you a box of matzah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn, that's still fucking funny. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about the high holidays. It's like everyone's coming at me. Everyone's coming at you with matzah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like how you feel about it being asked about tomatoes. Right. Okay. Right. It's like, look, tomatoes are objectively amazing, and it's annoying when people ask you about it. That's... Right. Just like Yom Kippur, also objectively amazing and great for everyone. <laughs> well, everyone needs Yom Kippur. Everyone, I think, personally. No, no comment. You don't have to do it the way you're supposed to do it, but everyone could use a little Yom Kippur in their life, I think, Mm -hmm. you know? Don't you think? You don't agree with that? It just feels like a broad statement to agree with. You know, it's not necessarily that I'm I'm anti-Yom Kippur, but just saying everyone needs a little Yom Kippur feels like I need to examine all the possible exceptions to that case before I can sign on. I've been Talmud-pilled. I have to start off with like, but what if... In the case of someone who hates Yom Kippur, I just have been uh, conditioned to think about all the exceptions before I allow something to be true. Okay, well, you're a better person than me. This is not the reason why, but that is true. Okay. Uh, I don't know. So no no high holiday plans. I'm probably going to get like an awkward guilt-inducing text from my aunt mm-hmm. about uh, like happy Rosh Hashanah. So that's going to be fun. But yeah, I don't know. What about you? How are you? Have plans? Baruch Hashem. I'm well. I'm chilling. I'm busy. It's a very busy time of year. Or I'm sort of like at the peak of like things I have to get done before the high holidays set in. And then I'll be sort of released from peak busyness for a while. High holidays. I'm going to go to some stuff in Providence. I'm going to blow shofar at some services. You know, just like the usual, usual holiday stuff. A little stressed out about it. Mostly about the logistics of getting there. Not having constant access to a car is really annoying. At least in a in a city like this, where transport is like not that great. But I'm I'm doing good. I'm feeling good. I I have like a lot of projects I love and care about, sort of clacking along. You know, I've got my dog. I've got my BF. I've got my plants. What more do I need? Nothing. 
I had Panda Express yesterday, oh, as great. which, as fans of the show will know, is my one true love. Yeah, I'm chilling. I got my tetanus shot yesterday at the doctor. Tetanus, wow. Okay. Yeah, you just have to get those every couple years, you know? Every 10 Every years. like seven years, like seven that. to 10 years. <laughs> um, so happy to have that checked off. Yeah, I was really grumpy yesterday because I got tetanus shot and I got blood drawn. So both of my arms were fucked. <laughs> And I was very grumpy. Am I making it up that the tetanus shot really hurts and sucks more than the other ones? Yeah, it is known to be one of the ones that hurts and sucks. Specifically, like, hurts your arm a lot. Well, that's good. I mean, (laughs) that's really good if it hurt, like, your eye. Well, like, some vaccines are like, oh, you feel really sick after you have them. Oh, yeah, that's terrible, actually. I see what you're saying. Anyway, I'm doing good. I'm vibing. I'm chilling. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm having a great day. And I'm very excited about the question we have today. I am too. It's a high quality question. I've been I've been talking it up. So a dear and beloved listener wrote in to us to ask, Hello, Talmud Hotline. I was wondering if the Talmud has any sources about marrying for residency or citizenship. I'm an immigrant surrounded by immigrants, and I have a standing promise with a friend to marry them in case they lose their right to remain in the country. And I was wondering if anything like that is found in ancient sources. Thank you. First of all, thank you, dear listener. Second of all, what a great question. When we first got this question, I was really curious, would the Talmud have any relevant sources? Because as I was telling Michael, and I guess this is sort of like part of my answer to our listener, in the Talmud, marriage is is sort of has two primary important vectors to it. One is a transactional arrangement in which oftentimes uh, women are exchanged as property because the Talmud has a a super misogynist uh, definition of marriage in most cases. And two is as a a fulfillment of a mitzvah and sort of uh, preparing us to be fruitful and multiply. So there's not really anything in those agendas that conflicts with marrying for uh, before citizenship. You say that, or, before you say that, Hava, we are not lawyers and we are not giving legal <laughs> advice. Yeah. Everything we say is for entertainment. Don't take any of our advice. Okay? Listeners. Um, yes. Anyway, I, one of us only lies and one of us only speaks the truth. Right. And nothing we say constitutes legal advice. Right. Right, right, right. Continue. Continue, Hava, please. There's nothing really in those agendas that conflicts with the idea of marrying, marrying, getting married for immigration residency or citizenship purposes. You know, marriage is like a very practical situation in Talmud and in most rabbinic sources. It's just like a thing that people do for various reasons, financial, familial, religious, you know, romantic being one of the lowest on the list of reasons one might do something like that. That was my my knee-jerk response to the question. Why why were you excited about this question, Michael? Well, I love your knee-jerk response, first of all. Great. Um, there's something about, like, a non-romantic marriage. I love it. I love it, you know? All you mm-hmm. listeners, all you crazy listeners out there who are, like, into all your, like, weird polycules and stuff like that, this is just another variant of a relationship. I love it. Sure. But also, you know, like, the romantic love thing is has been pretty hammed up the last i don't know 300 years or so decades who knows yeah so it's kind of nice i like that i love your gut but keep going Mm -hmm. so i thought i'd start off with um talking about betrothal a little bit so betrothal is sort of like our 
equivalent of engagement when we're dealing with rabbinic sources. And I picked out this really great quote from Mishnah Torah from Maimonides in his tractate on Kiddushin, which is betrothal, that sort of just lays out the mechanics of how betrothal works really succinctly. So he lets us know, how is the bond of Kiddushin established with a woman? If a man desires to establish Kiddushin by the transfer of money, he must give a pruta, either in coin or its worth. So he has to give a some kind of thing of value, either literally a coin or in something worth coin, like land, say, could be in something that met that category. Before giving it, he tells her, you are consecrated unto me, or you are betrothed unto me, or you become my wife through this. And he must give her the money or the item in presence of witnesses. It is the man that makes a statement that implies that he acquires the woman as his wife, and it is he who gives her the money. So this is one of the ways that it is established. A man explicitly states to a woman, obviously all of our listeners know and have thought about the misogynistic and homophobic issues of rabbinic understandings of marriage. And I'm not going to focus too much on that in this episode because that's a whole other series of episodes. The man gives the woman some kind of money or equivalent and says, this is to betroth you unto me, and it's given in the presence of witnesses. And that's how the betrothal happens. So that checks out. That's very interesting. It gives it to the woman he wants to marry, not to the woman's family. So this is really a negotiation between the woman and the man. Yes and no. I mean, at, at this point, halakhically, the woman is almost completely under control of her family, specifically her father. So I think saying that he gives it to the woman specifically is a little bit of a distinction without a difference. Okay. okay. At the same time, a lot of things that are acquired by a woman through marriage are protected in the case of a divorce so that she's entitled to a certain amount of those things or the value of them if she ends up getting divorced. And this is only one of the ways that betrothal can happen. There's three main ways. Money, a contract, which is called a star, or through intercourse, bia. We're not going to really talk about star betrothal and bia betrothal on this episode, but just know that the financial exchange is not the only way betrothal can be established, but it's the one that concerns our topic today. Okay, interesting. So, so far, this seems theoretically in line with marrying someone for citizenship. Citizenship can be conceived of as sort of a type of property. You know, it's sort of a right to a certain asset, and that can be exchanged for marriage. It seems... I am so glad that is how you phrased your response, because that okay. is very much the question at issue in our source. So let me read the the source that I was so excited to find for our question, which is a piece of Talmud that comes from Kiddushin 63a. Ha'omer lerisha harei. One who says to a woman, you are going to be betrothed to me on the condition that I will speak in your favor to the authorities. Or who says on the condition that I will act as a laborer for you. If he spoke to the authorities or acted as a laborer as promised, she is betrothed. But if not, she is not betrothed. Oh, my So that's our God. Mishnah. That's our, that's our starting Whoa, purpose. That is amazing. Because the point of that Mishnah is to just demonstrate that if the contract for the marriage isn't fulfilled, 
then the marriage doesn't happen. But the example they give is so on point for our for our listeners' question. I know. I And it took me so little time to find this. It was just like really jumped out from the text for me. I was, yeah, very thrilled to, to discover this. And yeah, this to start with at least lets us know that the idea of marrying someone on the condition that they're doing legal advocacy for you is like a valid arrangement in the eyes of the Talmud. So at the very least, we know that it's not in conflict. I would say marriage for citizenship or residency is very much within the bounds of what the Talmud considers a valid arrangement. So the reason that I was so excited about your phrasing is because of what comes in the Gemara on this Mishnah to sort of make this discussion a little more precise. So we start out with Reish Lakish says, this halacha applies only if he gave her an item worth one pruta at the time of the betrothal. She is not betrothed via his recommendation or via the labor itself, as these are merely conditions appended to the betrothal. So what Reish Lakish is saying is, it's not like you said. You said, you suggested initially that the residency or the legal advocacy is sort of equivalent of something like rights to land or a monetary exchange. What Reish Lakish is saying is, this is true, our Mishnah is true, however, it doesn't fulfill the requirement of financial exchange. This is just Got saying, it. Got it. you can do this kind of betrothal, you still need to do the financial exchange, that's a totally separate question according to Rachel Lakish. Right, right, right. It's it's not it's not enough to get the betrothal. Yes. Okay. But the reasons why are, are are quite interesting to me at least. So the Gemara asks, isn't she betrothed by the monetary value of his recommendation or action? Wasn't it taught in a Brita that if you say to a woman, you are betrothed to me by the monetary value you received when I had you ride on this donkey or when I had you sit on this wagon, when I had you ride on this boat? She is not betrothed as she has already done the action and therefore owes him a debt and one cannot betroth a woman with a loan. So what is coming up here is this idea that one could provide a service to their future betrothed. You could pay their boat fare to get them to you. And you could say, you are betrothed to me by the cost of this boat fare. Mm -hmm. And the Gemara says that's not valid because we can't create a betrothal through debt. It has to be an actual financial exchange. We can't create a betrothal through debt, and so you can't be betrothed by the debt that would be incurred via the boat fare. Now, is that because they have some issue with debt specifically, or is it because they're talking about like the metaphysical, like the, the moment the, of transformation? And if we want to like signal when two people are married, it need there needs to be something that can be exchanged in the moment and the exchange is complete fully in that moment. Is that what's going on? That's a good question. We'll touch on that a little bit. I didn't research too deeply into their issues with debt. In this moment, without having fully explored the sources, I want to choose to believe that they are trying to avoid women being entrapped via debt into marriage. Uh, on a technicality, you know, they want to avoid people being sort of suckered into betrothal. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, there's a strong possibility that it's also about the fact that they say betrothal happens when you give her one pruta, at least one pruta, and a debt doesn't count as giving someone one pruta. So they're saying 
the service, either the labor or the legal advocacy that the man is providing in our initial case, that's the same thing. It's saying you are betrothed to me by the uh, the monetary value of this uh, citizenship I'm providing or by this labor that I'm doing for you. And the rabbis are saying, no, that doesn't work. And that's why we agree with Rachel Akish and you do still have to give a pruta because it doesn't fulfill the requirement of financial exchange. We have more and more to discuss, but one of the reasons that I thought this this technical discussion to go into was interesting is because to me, in response to our listener's question, it's saying not only is this sort of an allowed variety of marriage, but the particulars and the rights of all the parties involved are of deep importance to the rabbis, both the one receiving the service and the one giving it. It, to me, feels like a endorsement is the wrong word, but at least a, an idea that the rabbis understood that this kind of thing happens and they wanted it to happen in the best way that it could. And they tried to outline systems for that. I, I get what you're saying. I also like wonder, maybe this is just modern eyes, but it seems like they're very open with the variety of conditions under which people get married. It's maybe not what you'd expect of people in the past, but it seems mm -hmm. like marriage may happen for all sorts of reasons. And they're sort of implying that fact that there's all sorts of contexts for why a marriage happens and they're not prescribing a reason why a marriage should happen. Right. And that's like very key to my knee jerk response on the question, which is that intention, at least in this case, doesn't seem to be a big ingredient in the validity of a betrothal or marriage. You know, there's right. a question yeah. about whether mechanically you accomplish betrothal, but whether you were doing it in order to receive the legal advocacy is not really at question here. Right, right, right. It's just whether whether this legal arrangement has been validly effectuated or not. So uh, the Gemara goes on to talk more about issues of monetary value. We continue on into our argument about how this betrothal is effectuated and whether there needs to be more financial exchange. It's taught in a baraita that if a woman says to a man, sit together with me and I will be betrothed to you, or perform entertainment before me, or dance before me, or do work for me, and I will be betrothed to you, which I just wanted to read because is a very fun situation to imagine. Do a little dance for me and we'll be betrothed by the power of dance. I love it. The court appraises the value of his action. And if the action is worth one pruta, she is betrothed. But if not, she is not betrothed. And so if the court appraises it, that must mean that she is betrothed by the monetary value of the action. So why can't we apply that same kind of reasoning to our case where we're speaking on behalf to the authorities? If we have this other brighta that says the court performs an appraisal on the action. Can I make a guess? It's because the action happens in that moment. You're getting very close to what it turns out to be. So the Gemara says, Reish Lakish could have said to you, the person who made that baraita about the dancing and the entertainment, they maintain that the obligation to pay a person's wage is incurred only at the end of the period for which they were hired. So for instance, if I say dance for me for a penny, I only am obligated to pay you that penny when you finish the dance. But the person who wrote our Mishnah about legal advocacy maintains that the obligation to pay a wage is incurred continuously from the beginning of the period he was hired until its end. So the person who wrote our Mishnah 
believed that every moment that I'm talking to the authorities on your behalf, you are accruing an obligation to pay me, which constitutes a debt that gets paid off when you fulfill that obligation. Oh, okay. But like when you're dancing, when someone's dancing, you're not accruing a debt every moment that they're shaking their hips at you? It's not even the difference between dancing and advocacy. It's just Rach Lakish could have refuted this by saying the person who wrote the Baraita and the person who wrote our Mishnah had fundamentally different ideas about how the accrual of wages works metaphysically. And that's why it seems like that Baraita contradicts our Mishnah, but actually these two Tenaim of similar authority just had different I see. views. Okay. So they're, they're both against the debt aspect. They're just yes. seeing debt in different places. Exactly. Okay, okay, got Looking it. for debt in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Which, to be clear, this is all very much like a, a retrojection onto all of these statements. This is definitely a moment where the Talmud is saying, oh no, there could never be a Baraita that would contradict our Mishnah. Actually, everything is in perfect agreement, and it's fine, and don't worry about it, actually. Okay, interesting. Okay, so it sounds like to me, at this point on the DAF, that the most conservative stance would be to make sure that your marriage betrothment exchange process involves something that is executed in the moment and preferably an object just to be on the super safe side to avoid accrual of any debt. Right, exactly. And to avoid the claim that your betrothal was established via debt. Got it. Okay. So the conclusion of this debate is the Gemara says... Rava said that this Mishnah was difficult for Reish Lakish. So Rava comes in with a with another explanation of why Reish Lakish was making a big deal out of this. And says, why does the person who wrote our Mishnah say on the condition, as in on the condition that I will speak to the authorities for you? Why doesn't he say buy the monetary value like they do in the Baraita about the dancing where they assess the monetary value? So why are these two things stated differently? He must have concluded that any time the text says on the condition, it's referring to a case where uh, the value of one pruta has already been given. And when it says by the monetary value, that must mean it's dealing with that kind of case where the monetary value is being exchanged. So consequently, the value of his service can't be given and instead serves as a later condition. Basically, this whole thing gets... uh, resolved on a technicality, which is that our Mishnah technically said, you're betrothed to me on the condition that I speak to the authorities. Right, right. Whereas our Baraita said the sages assess the monetary value. And so these are just dealing with two completely different varieties of case. And so we don't have to worry about whether they conflict with one another. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. So if the, the case we were in had said, we're betrothed, by the monetary value of me speaking to the authorities. Mm-hmm. And we take the more um, lenient idea of debt accumulation, then that would be enough for a marriage. I want to say yes. The answer to this point to me is question mark, because it's unclear to me whether Rach Lakish is saying something about legal advocacy is fundamentally different than dancing. Or whether he's just saying the language of the contract needs to be specific. Right. There right. may have been later authorities that came in and, and made determinations on that question. 
but I'm not quite ready to say like fully enthusiastically yes. But I think you're probably right that like as long as you clearly stated you are betrothed to me by the monetary value of my legal advocacy for you. Okay. Okay. So from the perspective of our listener, the best case scenario is you can get a green card marriage and not only that, but the contractual basis for the marriage can actually be the monetary value that the person gets for getting the green card. Mm-hmm. Putting aside all gender issues for a moment. Right. The worst case scenario for the listener is you can get a green card marriage. It just can't be the legal basis for the marriage, but it's totally cool that that's an aspect of the marriage and is one of the promises that make. That right. And can be an explicit agreement and can be an explicit agreement as part of the marriage. Yeah. You just need to also do some sort of physical exchange of an asset that's worth a certain monetary value. Right, which nowadays in mostly occurs via the exchange of rings. Great. So just get them a really nice you know, set of dangly earrings. That's my yeah. personal opinion. So all that debate we read about how monetary value accrues, it didn't really add anything to the question of what does the Talmud think about marriage for immigration purposes, but it was really fun to me. <laughs> Or it was really interesting to me. And it also sort of, I don't know, I think it, it just shows me that there is a, uh, a value placed on explicitly negotiating this kind of thing, which I think is something that can be easily lost a lot of times in the way we think about a lot of us think about marriage today. I personally am a fan of of explicitly negotiating things, even if they are romantic. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting because it's like the rabbis are having a conversation at not a higher level or a lower level, but like a different, they're dealing with a different plane of argument that happens to weirdly negate the question that we're trying to ask. Right. In favor of the listener, which is kind of cool. Yeah, also what you said about like, yeah, the contractual aspects of something that's like now supposed to be really romantic and i think that's very interesting i know there's like a trend now millennials are asking for you know prenups more often i don't know maybe our generation has a slightly more i don't want to say less romantic but something additional that they factor in when they think about marriage Mm -hmm. but that might be maybe more similar to how the rabbis thought about marriage It's bringing up all sorts of thoughts I have about like what marriage means and what it has meant historically and all the baggage around it and what it could have been like in the past or and stuff like that. Very neat. I also think our listener did specifically mention I have a standing promise with a friend to marry them in case they lose their right to remain in the country. It seems like both our Mishnah and Gemara would hold that that is a valid contractual promise as part of a betrothal. If you say you're betrothed to me on the condition that you lose your citizenship in this country, if they lose their their citizenship or right to remain, then they're betrothed to you. And if not, then they're not. So it seems like specifically the kind of arrangement you're talking about is the kind of promise between people that the Talmud recognizes for the purposes of betrothal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and it's definitely saying it it either counts for betrothal or counts as an addend, as an amendment to the betrothal. Right. Counts as long as you also give at least the value of one pruta to your friend in order to effectuate the financial exchange. I was thinking about what would be the equivalent for rabbis 
of this question that the listener brought, which is like, what if the promise that someone makes is to do something bad, is to do an anti-mitzvah, you know? Oh, interesting. That's the conditions of the marriage. Like, right. You're betrothed to me on the condition that I eat this pork loin. Right. Right. What would the rabbis think of that marriage? If yeah, they I don't know. They might address that somewhere. I didn't even go on that angle. Yeah. So the answer to the main question is, does the Talmud have anything to say about this? I would say, although it doesn't mention residency or citizenship specifically, to me, this passage is about the kind of thing that you asked about, listener. So the answer to that question is a yes. And the details to what it says is, yes, that is a valid kind of marriage. And here are some details about how you're allowed to negotiate it. Right, 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 right. And like for the specifics about you know, doing gray area stuff legally with a government. I mean, there's lots of other, we've talked about in the past examples where the rabbis have done gray area stuff to preserve themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. So we had an episode way, like one of our first episodes was like, what's the relationship to the authorities that Jews should mm-hmm. have and, and to police and stuff like that. Right. So, right. But of course, none of this is legal advice. None of it. Right. This is all entertainment. Don't do anything that we say. Not legal advice. Right. This is only legal advice on the condition that pigs fly. Uh, I don't even want to say that. I don't know (laughs) what crazy billionaire is trying to put wings on a pig. Fair, fair point. Elon is out there. Who knows what he's up to at any given moment. Anyway, listener, thank you for this wonderful question and the journey it sent me on. I hope everyone enjoyed the little tidbits of knowledge we got to savor this episode. We will keep making magical Michigas for you all. And we'll talk to you soon. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.